fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help unite our nation. The cry for freedom as only sport can do. Pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's, nobody's calling. Nope, nope, nobody, nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. It's August 23rd. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing fair. I'm a little distressed about the state of the world, as many are, but at the same time, I'm looking forward to talking about a sport that seems to be well-suited for the times, uh, kind of outside the mainstream, that being disc golf. Yeah, so that's right. We're going to waste this much of your time talking about disc golf. So uh, <laughs> buckle in. So, well, um, what have you been paying attention to this week, other than uh, our assigned topic? I suppose. Yeah, a couple things for me. Maybe a couple quick hits, actually, and then see if any of them sound interesting to explore a little bit further, but. I came across a story that a lot of, not a lot, but some smaller clubs, smaller teams, minor league teams, rugby teams kind of around the world have kind of collectively accidentally wound up in the same space, and that being on Facebook. They're selling content, so Hmm. kind of like behind the scenes, what sounds to me like YouTube content that a lot of the bigger clubs, uh, in particular, like... EPL clubs, um, giving behind the scenes looks at training and documentary type stuff. But apparently they're uh, getting their money back and making just a little bit more. Hmm. And from what I gathered, the intention is not to get rich, but the intention is to kind of offset ticket sales that they're missing out on right now. And then also the intention is to make enough money to keep making content. Hmm. and kind of create a sustained meeting place of fan and team. And I was really compelled by that and interested in it. And it seems to coincide with what the athletic exists as, which is kind of the old sports, local sports newspaper coverage. Mm -hmm. And this kind of seems the same. And I don't know, I, I guess I came away from it just kind of hopeful Um, I can't see myself ever paying for content on Facebook, but I don't know. Maybe it's an outlet that has some potential and Hmm. and just intriguing because it's new. It's it's something kind of yet to be seen. Unhelpful story is college football is a mess, but maybe (laughs) I'm happy about that a little bit underneath it all to see that. But at the same time, the fact that if the SEC goes back and other leagues go back and people die because of it, that's going to be pretty awful. Uh, and I think it's going to put a lot of stress on our society at large. So uh, props to the leagues that have said we're not playing and shame on the leagues that are not there. My third final thing is baseball has a lot of young talent that's really exciting. And MLB unfurling their season as they have has been a mess, much like I think college football will be. 
And at the same time, there's some young players that are just really exciting to watch. And for me personally, I haven't paid that much attention to Major League Baseball in the last couple of years, but these young players are drawing me in. So hmm. Juan Soto, Acuna, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. is at the top, Rendon, Javier Baez, Yasmani Grandal. These guys are really, really good, and they're really fun to watch. And what I love most is that they're pushing back on the old boys club of baseball and showing it to be as stupid as it is. And Tatis Jr. did like three things in four days uh, to piss off the old guard, and I absolutely loved it and support everything he's doing. Yeah, I think uh, my favorite thing was seeing the Guardian's headline, is there anything stupider than baseball's unwritten rules? Which, yeah, I don't, I can't think of many things. It's a perfect headline. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oof. But fa- all of those fascinating. First off, uh, college football, I don't really care that much about. Um, but I will say, uh, Trevor Lawrence, uh, I have never cared what you think. We'll never care what you think. So just, I know you don't care what I think either, but just know that there's a large percentage of us who don't give a rat's ass what you think about anything. So, What did he say? Well, he's just leading this charge of players that want to play. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I'm sorry, I don't care what a, a 21-year-old who's going to go make millions in the NFL uh, and doesn't have very much to risk uh, wants to do by coming back to play football this year um you know i i this is should go without saying everyone wants to play duh yeah (laughs) no one wants to be doing any of this what a useless argument absolutely no one wants it that's perfectly stated yeah i want to be able to go to the grocery store without a mask on you know i'd want to do that too but you know what I'm not going to do that because it's not a good thing to do right now. Exactly. Well, my word. I would, so I have to say I was struck. I don't know um, what was happening in Roanoke yesterday, but on my walk up the mountain yesterday, um, there were a, what seemed to be youth soccer teams. So there must have been a youth soccer tournament in town, which mm-hmm. why that is happening is a whole nother question. Um yeah. But, like, all of these kids with no masks on up there, like, 40 kids on the overlook. And I'm like, what is happening? I need to run through here as quickly as possible and get the hell away from these people. Right. Uh, but all of their parents were standing around in groups with no masks on, too. And it just, like, how many kids are growing up with no understanding because no one is talking to them about what's happening right now? Yes. And and so, yeah, I mean, I know you must be aware of that as a teacher, but that's just what struck me this week is how how much we assume that people are hearing the same things, but particularly with kids, uh, that we can't assume anything, I don't think. I was shocked to learn that club soccer in Louisville has been going on like all summer. Yeah, I, I just assumed they weren't, and I just found out that a lot of the clubs were just practicing all summer. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. But um, I... I uh, I'm particularly interested in this content question, I think, right mm-hmm. now. Um, it takes me back to my boys at Oracle Green Edge, Mitchelton Scott, and them kind of being ahead of the curve with this backstage pass right. stuff and, like, what what that does for a team, particularly a team 
um, you know, cause they're not making money off ticket sales. And so they have to figure out like how to make brand deals work and how do you add value to keep your brand sponsors happy if you're not, if you don't have people on the stands and you're not selling jerseys and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it's pre- really compelling to think about these clubs that are being creative at the flip side, seeing clubs that are going out of business left and right, uh, right and are going to exactly. continue to do so. Um, but how do you like make up that difference? And there's also, I have to confess that there's a part of me, um, they got wondering this week because right. So the NBA is talking about coming back December 1st, probably not going to happen. Right. Um, uh, and they're talking about, they're trying to figure out ways to have fans in the stands. Okay. You know, that's all whatever you, I understand you want to get back to normal. Um, but I think it, what's really interesting to me to think about from that is we know the reasons that they need to go get stands fans back in the stands because they make a lot of money, even though they make all these TV deals, like the individual teams make most of their money off concessions and ticket sales and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what it made me think about was like, is an NBA that exists in the bubble just for television, uh, which has lower revenues and therefore like lower salaries. So we don't have to feel as uncomfortable about the amount of money changing hands. Um, and it doesn't have, these these fans in the stands type thing is that a healthier version of the sport in our minds than the version that we see uh beforehand right Um, right and i don't know i mean it just kind of like i think for you and i anything that takes money out of it to some degree kind of raises the question like is this a good thing right right i agree and i've been exploring how I feel about that and how I think about it and then just kind of dabbling a little bit and paying attention to what's happening to these minor league teams. And I, I agree with you is that it opens the door to that conversation of what would it look like to scale down at large over all sports. And conceptually, I think you and I both arrived there saying, yes, like when we peer in that open door, like, Anything that's going to lessen the scale of these sports could potentially bring about a whole lot of good. And so I think one thing I I pay attention to, and it leads me back to uh, NBA players uh, subsidizing the salaries of stadium employees. So it is true that a lot of the people that are involved with non-massive professional teams are not making a ton of money and are just kind of doing mm-hmm. it as a job. And so I, I think about those people and what that would mean for them. But I also, when that door opens, I, I'm willing to say like, I think there's a lot of potential for, here for all of us to take a second and say, how do we feel about the, the scale of this? Yeah. Well, and I think it also, I think this is something that um, I want to, chat for us to chat about being a potential future topic, um, particularly in light of what's happening now, but just what do we think the value of attending a sports event is mm-hmm. um, versus what do we like, what is the ideal experience of a sporting event? And for so long, it's been going to a game. Right. Uh, but do we, do we still think that's the case at this point? Is that, um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I just, it, it's raising questions for me that, you know, I've, uh, because of you and I, who we are, I feel like this is the time to ask the questions if we're ever going to ask them. Right. 
yeah, kind of disrupting those assumptions and narratives that underlie the fan experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So something we may want, I, I was debating on bringing this up because I, it might be too much of a nerdy, useless intellectual question, but I, I have to admit that it was on my mind several times this week. And that is tennis without fans. Hmm. And there's something about it at a sociological level that's really fascinating to think about for me because I it had me thinking about the relationship between sport and fan in live um, settings and which sports are most attuned with or in concert with the fans. And I think what I was exploring a little bit was the relationship between the game of tennis and the individuals playing on the court and the fans is a really intimate experience. Mm. I feel like as in they're truly in concert with each other. Uh, there's like a give and a take and uh, that like, the, I don't know. So the, down that road was a lot of thoughts that are probably useless other than they're just like fun to think about um, as a sort of escapist thought process about how sports and fans work. Well, it's particularly interesting, I think, in tennis, given that, you know, top 10 players at some place like Wimbledon are going to be playing with without fans and potentially mm -hmm. first and second round matches before they get to the big courts. Exactly. So, yeah. You know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I was just thinking about that. Like, it's going to be like it is weird to see all of these sports without fans. But I think in my experience. For me personally, seeing tennis without fans feels especially weird. Interesting, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Well, um, my, the thing I've been paying attention to this week, and I've been pestering you with texts about it, um, is I have been introduced to the world of adventure racing this week, mm -hmm. which I was not aware was a thing, um, yeah. uh, through this Amazon show, which has its major flaws it's hosted by Bear Grylls, who becomes more grading as time goes on, um, and uh, put together by Mike Burnett, who did um, uh, Survivor, does Survivor. Um, so it's got all of those hallmarks in it. But I have to say, like, the actual event itself was some of the most compelling uh, uh, stuff I've seen in a long time. Um, so are you, how familiar are you with the idea of adventure racing? Very oddly, but maybe to some not surprising, I used to be obsessed with it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When I was in middle and high school and even early college, I like followed adventure racing. <laughs> so I, so I, I'll admit I watched like the first 15 minutes and it, the jaws wasn't there for me anymore. Uh, so I may need to keep watching a little bit, but I'm really curious what drew you in and how you're feeling about it. Well, I think so. It, it's a lot of the same stuff about the Iron Man, um, but like to a much more extreme level, it felt like. So, I mean, in the first episode, right? So they go out hard there, have to row these boats for like, I don't know, 80 miles, something like that. Mm -hmm. Something absurd. And the team that winds up in first is a team from Bend, Oregon after that leg. But they've gone so deep that one guy like has heat stroke, but instead of giving up, they tie a rope to the guy. Mm -hmm. And like drag him up the mountain so he doesn't have to pay attention to where he's going. All he has to do is keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's like, this is not normal. So that right. kind of, 
that kind of got me hooked. But then I think the thing that really got me was that there's a guy, the captain for the team that winds up winning uh, a New Zealand team, which I, I highly doubt I'm going to spoil anything for anybody here. Not yeah. that anyone would care about that. Um, guy named Nathan Faave, I think is how you would pronounce it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, is just I find him one of the most compelling characters I'd seen in television in terms of like uh, an extreme athlete, um, mm-hmm. but also like a, a vision of leadership that I so rarely see. I mean, he was like the way the reason they won, I think, was largely because they they just kept themselves calm. It was like going it was like they showed up at the office and for yeah. six days they worked their asses off. Right. But it was like a job. They weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't there to survive. They were there to win, right. um, but they were there to do so in a really compelling way. And I just, first off, like the athletic achievement of seeing these guys do it in six days or whatever, and then seeing really fit and amazing athletes take 12 days to struggle every minute of it to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's like, how do these other guys do it so quickly? I cannot fathom that, but mm-hmm. Uh, so all of that combined to uh, to to lead to some really compelling television for me that uh, I wanted to after the, like the real race part was over I didn't care very much about the folks that were struggling to finish part but yeah. um, the actual competition part I found super super compelling. I find, in addition to all that you mentioned, the navigation piece to be mm-hmm. especially fascinating and i really like that framing of it as going to work because i feel like those professional teams completely compartmentalize uh psychosocial emotional relationships with each other mm-hmm. and they're just kind of like cyborgs saying i'm gonna feel a lot of things along this way and none of those feelings matter and I find that really interesting that it's so single-minded for those pro teams and how slick they are in kind of every aspect of what it takes to win the adventure race. Well, I think that's what I think like what was really compelling to me about Nathan, who I would use his last name, but I can't, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce it, but um, was that he talked a lot about how really, you know, it's just about watching out for your teammates mm-hmm. and like making sure your teammates are all thriving Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so it's like, you're both in a place where you need to push each other really hard, but you're also looking for limits and making sure no one is getting too close to those limits all the time. And like, it, you know, like, so one of the, the, so every team has to have a woman on it, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but that the winning teams, well, this was like her first big race back and she had been, had a child nine months before. It's like, mm-hmm good grief and so like you know i there's all these things like how do you how does your body handle it but it is the single-mindedness of all of them really Mm -hmm. not even the professional teams but like these folks that would have to spend eight hours on a bike ride like that is that is not something i ever want to do in my life Um, and they would just get on and do it and it's like okay that's a different kind of thing that's not what i would do for fun right right Yeah, I often think about what their lives are like outside of it and how being an adventure racer uh, affects their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also, it it had me curious that just watching a little introduction to it, it had me curious of like where adventure racing has been for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And it might have been there the whole time. 
But I also feel pretty confident saying that if it was still on ESPN2, how it used to be, I would have seen it. And I don't think I've seen it for the last 10 or 15 years. No, I think, well, I think, so what, what they kind of shared when I had to dig out was, so this was the eco challenge, which is something that Mike Burnett had done before Survivor and like Mm -hmm. petered out in 2004 or something like that, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even like the last two years of that, when it's produced by an American company, we're not broadcast in the United States. Um, And so like this was bringing it back in many ways to the mainstream, but it was, um, uh, it's also interesting, like the the first place American team, I think, came 18th. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's not like um, uh, it's not like this is a sport where Americans are thriving at. And how much does that play into the fact that we don't we don't see any of it? I did see that one of the athletes had a feature in the New York Times. Did you come across that? Well, I, uh, so I've seen several interesting ones on The Guardian or elsewhere. I didn't see the one in The Times. Who was that uh, for? It was the African-American guy that was promoting LGBTQ access to and uh, participation in adventure racing. I found him to be a super compelling individual. Like the more I read about him because I'm like, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. And like the more I read about him, I'm like, okay, this is just fascinating. I can't, Mm -hmm. I wish I knew that these people exist. These are, these would be the ones I'd want to hold up. Mm Mm-hmm. But same with uh, the Guardian did a thing, I think, on uh, these Indian uh, women. So, like, there are two Indian sisters that did it. uh, And, like, they, uh, of course, Indian culture is not always high on the power of the female. And so I found that to be a fairly compelling story. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, the takeaway for me was really this, this New Zealand team and how professional and how compelling I found that professionalism in the light of something that um, like they're clearly really enjoy it and are good at it. Uh, but there's also like, a, all right, we're going to come out here and destroy the competition at this. Right. Right. I did love when they're like, they're leading by three hours after the third stage. And they're like, yeah, we just kind of take it easy out of the beginning. And then if we, when we find the need to put down the hammer, we'll put down the hammer. I'm like, you guys are destroying everybody else. And it's easy for you. <laughs> I love that. That makes for good television too. Well, the, well, and I have to say that I, one of the other big interesting takeaways for me was the age of the contestants. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're almost universally not twenty-year-olds. Right. They're almost all like upper thirties into their forties, mm-hmm. which I think raises really interesting questions for me about um, the power of endurance and like mental control that you get when you age. That kind of provides a counterpoint to some of the other stuff we've talked about in terms of the decline of the body with aging in recent weeks on here. So just an interesting uh, counterpoint to some of our conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. That concept of the limit is also, I feel like for you and I kind of popping up here and there recently mm-hmm. um, might be something to explore uh, kind of from a zoomed out lens and a whole episode on its own, but there is something really tied to adventure racing and kind of in an acuity for operating at the limit, right? Of just kind of knowing what it feels like, what it looks like, how to notice it, how to respond to it, what its role is, like all of that, just kind of knowledge of it. Yeah. The, it's a, the, the hardest part of the race was there's a, there's a swim section uh, at the top of a mountain where they have to go through some streams. Um, it's like eight miles of swimming in 50 degree wet, uh, 50 degree temperatures in the water. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there's there's a, like a top 10 team came out of that with an athlete who was losing consciousness from hypothermia. Wow. Uh, and so it's like we are clearly past the healthy limit. Right. And yet like six hours later, they're back at it again once he's warmed up. And it's like, what is this? What what are we doing here, right. folks? Yeah. Um, it's fascinating from a broad view too. Like why does this exist? Mm-hmm. That's pretty fascinating to dig into. Yeah. Anyway. Well, let's uh let's move from something very that feels very undomesticated to something that feels very uh, normal and domesticated in some ways. How do you feel about that? I love it. Let's do it. All right. All right. Let's talk about some disc golf. So uh, I sent you some stuff to watch. Uh, uh, any thoughts? Any first feedback, Kyle? What are my first thoughts? My first thoughts are I think maybe I'm going to pick up a thread that we've kind of already been making use of or following a little bit here. And that is how these sports are covered and how Mm -hmm. we gain access to them. And I think what sticks out to me about my first foray into the online disc golf world is that there is quite a bit of access, maybe a little bit more than I thought there ever could be about accessing disc golf world. And I think it's worth pointing out this, brand that has been created this production company that has uh built up around the disc golf world and that being jomez Mm -hmm. and so i think my first real interest in uh getting acquainted with this the disc golf world is this production company so i i'm curious i have thoughts on their coverage but i'm wondering uh, what Jomez is and what you know about it and just kind of like how you feel about how this golf is being covered. Maybe we should describe a little bit how it's being covered too. Yeah. So the main coverage of disc golf will be next day post-production videos. So uh, they'll break it down into front nine, back nine, uh, usually 30 to 40 minutes per video. So we're talking you know, an hour to an hour and a half commitment to watch around a disc golf. So it's significant commitment still. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the main kind of production company, there's probably four significant production companies out there. There's Jomez Pro, which is the chief one. There's Central Coast Disc Golf, which are considered like the second tier. Uh, and then there's kind of a third tier that's got Parsave Productions, GK Pro, and there's a couple other companies in there that are even farther down. Um, but it is, Jomez has clearly staked their stuff at the top. Um, it's interesting, the little things, like if you were, um, I think you don't really understand what sets them apart till you've watched some of the other folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but just some of the, like the camera angles that they choose are better than the other folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, I mean, they're at the point this, at this point where they've got, you know, you've got two cameras on the tee box, one looking at the folks, one from behind. And then another out in the field. Um, and then they've got these follow flights and things like that where they'll follow the disc in the air type thing for particularly good shots and things like this. So I, it's a very polished production, but at the same time, there are certainly elements of it that feel very amateurish. They'll still miss shots, miss shots every once in a while. And, you know, the commentary is, uh, <laughs> you, you never know quite what you're going to get on it, which is one of my favorite parts of it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. what This was your first kind of foray into it. What did you think? 
I'll say a couple things. The first thing that stood out to me is that it felt like early X Games. Hmm. And in particular, it's what you're saying of where the actual cameras are, how cameras are being used, the amount of effects, and then, of course, the commentary feels especially like early X Games, maybe even current X Games to some extent. It's kind of this very uh, unpolished, casual, conversational-based commentary. That it comes the day after, I feel, adds an element to it that is really intriguing to me. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing for the sports. And I, a way I think it might be a good thing is related to a very personal thing of how I've been watching golf the last few months. And that is watching it recorded on YouTube TV And so I can watch a six-hour round in about 40 minutes, maybe. Mm -hmm. So kind of exactly what you just described of how disc golf is being covered. And I think if someone packaged that together for me and I didn't have to do it, I I think I might watch rounds that way. Um, Maybe. I don't know. Because there's also something... I don't... Is languid the right word? I don't know what languid means. I, I guess... Something that is both uh, something I miss about watching golf the way I'm watching it is the pace of it. I I enjoy slow-paced sports. And so there was part of me, too, that wanted to be able to walk along with the guys for the whole round um, Mm -hmm. and kind of see everything. Because there's something about the aesthetics of sports that move slowly that is not just about the actual moment of athletic feet. So it's not just the throw, but it's the walk between. It's the conversations they have on the way. It's how drama builds around each throw uh, as we get, as you get closer to the end of the round. So all of those things had me wanting to go to a disc golf tournament and go, and this gets to our conversation about live fan experiences. Uh, it sounds like an absolutely delightful experience. And, that would, that's what made me think about real golf again, which is like how real golf used to uh, incorporate fans, and that is you literally just would walk along with uh, the players without any ropes or anything. And so the thought of doing that at disc golf tournament sounded really awesome to me. And so in that way, I like love that the coverage is so compact and the commentary is so unpolished. I loved those things. But it also had me curious about what it would look like to – uh, follow them for the whole round, which I don't. I was also curious how long a round takes for pros. Yeah, so I, you know, I have not spent very much time watching live. I think I have watched about total fifteen minutes of a live round. Um, mm-hmm. They, the Disc Golf Pro Tour, which is uh, you know the biggest tour, um, as you would guess by the name. Uh, they uh, they have a channel we've talked about that you have to pay for to get access to the live stuff. Um, and uh i found it super boring yeah uh, yeah um largely because uh th- they're very long rounds they can be very long rounds so like they had a tournament this past week where you know some of the some of the rounds were taking four hours but there were also some six hour rounds taking place and that's wow. just that's, that's a long, long yeah and so, like you know, then there's also they talked about. I think on this on this past tournament's coverage, like there's one hole in particular that people were really struggling on. So I think like when the leaders got there, there was a five uh, five uh, 
group back up on that hole. So like, yeah. And I think the thing that makes it hard to do that is that you don't have multiple cameras. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, first off, because you're playing in foursomes, all the lead guys that you really care about are going to be on that. Like the chase card guys can win occasionally, but it's very rare in disc golf compared to, um, normal golf. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, um, there's not enough money in disc golf to have multiple cameras. So like, you're not going to have be able to splice between shots on seven different holes at the same time. Like you could for the PGA tour, which I think makes it an even less compelling thing. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong. There are parts of it that I really enjoy, like seeing the competitors, um, like waiting in a tee box and just kind of sitting in the grass, chatting with each other was interesting, but I don't also don't want to watch that for, for, uh, six hours. So, Right. Well, two things come up for me then. One thing I'd, I want to talk about is money, but maybe to stay with production for a minute and how these things are covered. I was really fascinated to find that. Uh, I mean, it's almost just coincidence, I guess, but disc golf is going to be on CBS this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so this... what you know about that or what you think about it or what you've heard about it. Yeah, so I talked about this a little bit in a previous podcast, but it has totally split the disc golf world. That there's a lot of folks that are furious because they didn't get next day coverage. Like Jomez, who's doing this stuff for CBS, like they reached a deal to do it for CBS. So it'll be essentially Jomez's coverage on CBS Sports Network. Um, that they uh, they did that um, to grow the sport, but the people that watched the next day coverage were furious because they didn't get next day coverage right. for it. Um, and so it, it's been a big, the whole question, which I think is the question for every niche niche sport is uh, how much do you want to grow the sport before you really don't want it to be any bigger than it is. Right. Um, which I know you have questions about Brody and that's been the same kind of divide on Brody as it is on other stuff. Well, maybe let's go ahead and dig into that. Um, let's describe who Brody Smith is. How would you describe <laughs> Brody Smith? Uh, I I don't know. Uh, my opinion of him has changed over the past six months. Um, oh, okay. So Brody Smith is perhaps the most famous ultimate Frisbee player in the world, but he's got bad knees, so he had to give up ultimate Frisbee when he's still fairly athletic. I think he's – like 29, 30, something like that at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So he has decided to become a professional disc golf player at this point. Um, But he's bringing a lot. He was always kind of an allowed abrasive character in the, in the ultimate world. And he brought that shtick and created a YouTube channel, which was very successful, is very successful. 2 million, I think subscribers. Um, And so as soon as he started playing disc golf, he's the most famous disc golf player ever. Um, which is, you know, kind of weird to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know another sport where that would be the case, where the most famous professional is, you know, perhaps the 100th best player or worse in the world. Right. Um, um, but it is, uh, it's fascinating to follow him. I think we've gotten to see that he's like, that abrasive stuff is more of a character, I think, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um but that doesn't mean – I mean, he obviously cultivated it. So what do we think about people that cultivate personas to, for notoriety? That's a whole nother conversation. But, um, yeah, he's bringing 
is bringing a whole nother level of uh, fandom to the game in many ways. Yeah. That's what, so I was just doing a quick glance. So my data is not perfect here, but it looked like a lot of Jomez videos, like on average were like 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 views, something like that. And it looks like Brody Smith averages something around like 600,000, 700,000 mm-hmm. views. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> Jomez needs what, like uh, 50 videos to reach that number. And it's still probably the same 30 or 40,000 people watching each video where Brody Smith can make one disc golf video and have 10 times the viewership that the number one production company in disc golf can achieve. One really stupid video. Yeah, stupid video about like, yeah, a trick shot or something, right? Like nothing. Or I I played alternate shot with my wife who's not very good, you know, all these things. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that is pretty fascinating. Um, And I don't know what to think about it other than it raises these really interesting questions about like – that that I don't even know if I know how to ask because it seems so bizarre. Uh, it, it's like kind of surreal uh, approach to a sport to say like I'm gonna like all of a sudden play this pro sport that he can do it and it's seemingly like pretty good. Um, I I don't know if that is damaging to the disc golf world or if it speaks to his athletic ability as an individual. Um, and, and so I don't know what to think about it other than I, I also came across what's the website, um, ultimate disc golf. I got the, I got the feeling that ultimate disc golf.com disc golf.altaworld.com. Okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of their chief writers had an article saying that uh, he's totally for all of this, that this is exactly what the disc golf world needs. But that's from someone that is making a living in the world. So I don't know how others would feel about it. Well, and so I think that one of the big things to take away from this, so um, Brody Smith, unsurprisingly, given that he's coming from Ultimate, is sponsored by Discraft. Um, Discraft is... Uh, the one that makes the ultimate Frisbee disc. That's the standard for everything. No one else has made an ultimate Frisbee disc. That's worth talking about. Um, so unsurprisingly, a company that he's already familiar with is the one that he's has a relationship with. Discroft is also the sponsor of the best male and female players in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the number one on both sides. Uh, the number one male player is a guy named Paul Macbeth. Um, and Paul Macbeth and Brody have apparently become rather tight. Um, they have started a company together, um, uh, Foundation Disc Golf, which is a disc golf supplier. Um, they uh, make a number of training videos together. So Brody is literally learning from the best in the world during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's also noteworthy that he is not um, he's not there yet. Um, so I think we've seen that he has the physical talents to become a top 20 player in the world. But right now he's, I would probably call him a, um, uh, a an above average or lower tier pro player, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, 
so that he but and it's funny like you watch it's you know you talk about access we um they're putting out a bunch of stuff and so you can watch a practice round of his and you can see that like he still doesn't under quite i mean he's been playing for eight months competitively or thinking a lot about it at this point and so he doesn't quite understand how all his discs are going to fly at any moment um he's still making some pretty rudimentary errors um and so it's uh like there is it reminds me of uh, our conversations about steph going to play golf um like i think it's very much the same kind of thing like i think if I remain convinced that if Steph took three years and just played golf, he could play on the PGA tour yeah. and probably wouldn't be a top tier player, but could be like, you know, make cuts in, in tournaments and right. things like that. Right. Um, I think it's the same for Brody, but it's probably a little easier for him given that there's a lot of folks that have kind of paved that pathway from ultimate to disc golf. Um, they're very different in how you throw the disc. Um, but they're also, of course, if you're used to throwing a disc, uh, you can kind of, figure out how to do it more right well the other piece i think that is we haven't mentioned explicitly yet but is sitting right there is the money piece mm-hmm. so i'm curious what kind of livelihood these top pros have and then i'm also curious about the non-top tier pros what kind of livelihood they have and what you know about that yeah so um This is part of my, the part I find most fascinating. So there's probably, I would guess, and I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that there are um, eight players that make over $100,000 a year. Yeah. Um, So Paul McBeth, Ricky Wysocki, Eagle McMahon, Simon Lazat, these guys probably all make in excess of 250 grand or thereabouts a year. Yeah through brand deal. And it's almost all, I should say it's almost none of it is from tournament winnings. Like a good tournament winning would be $5,000. Right. Like that's, that's the highest paying tournament uh, that you could go to. Um, so it's not from that. It's all from brand deals and people buying discs with your name on them. People, uh, companies paying you to wear their stuff. All of those kind of things is how, how these folks make their money. Uh, and really the disc companies are far and away the biggest, component of that so innova discraft dynamic discs discs mania these are the main sponsors mm-hmm. um so it is interesting from that angle of like there aren't really outside sponsors all of the sponsors are ones that are engaged in the sport in some other fashion beyond just sponsoring um which is interesting. but then you get to think about these other players um it's like you know uh let me uh so there's like a, a terry roethlisberger or a Eric Oakley, these are guys that are um, somewhere between, you know, 30 and 50th best on the tour. Uh, And they're still traveling. I mean, these guys are traveling all over the country and potentially all over the world Mm -hmm. to play disc golf. And yet they're probably making 40 grand a year to do so. Right. Which is just kind of fascinating to me to think about that. Right. Yeah, it's a fascinating question about where the threshold is for a sport like that and uh, what the capacity is for bringing in money and then sustaining a certain level of livelihood for those that choose it as a profession and maintain a high level of play to keep making that money and accessing the money. Um, It's an interesting question that I feel like we don't talk enough about, and that is, so I'm thinking of just uh, of golf, of how – it takes 125 players at a tournament to make that tournament have clout, right? 
And yet mm -hmm. there's probably in a given week, maybe 25, 30 guys that are going to win. And in reality, there's probably like eight or nine that are playing hot at that time and are going to win. And so that, that's a fascinating concept of like how many it takes to uphold a sport and what kind of logistics and what kind of resources and what kind of sponsorship deals and what kind of production coverage. And so all of these take, all of these concerns and thoughts take me to a place of like, what is the sustainability of professional disc golf? And if it were to go beyond what it is now, what would have to happen? Yeah. And it's, um, in many ways I find it to be a very sustainable model because there's not much money in it. Mm -hmm. Um, like these tournaments would happen anyway. These players would play and seek out the top tournaments anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that, from that angle, I'm like, it feels very sustainable. And there's also, and so this is kind of the question I have for you. I mean, you've fiddled around with the idea of going, uh, it's, I'm sure it's been a long time at this point, but, uh, I know at some point you were talking about if you try to play golf really competitively, you thought you might have a chance at one of the minor tours or mm -hmm. something out there. Right. Like, but like, how would that have changed your perspective? Uh, if making, instead of making 40,000 to be on a minor golf tour the midwest or even the web.com tour where you're going to be traveling a bunch but you're not going to be in the spotlight or anything like that how much would that have changed your mind if that was to be on the pga tour and you'd be making forty five thousand to go play in the pga tour for five years and travel um to these tournaments but get to play against the best in the world at those times uh and i don't know what you'd what you'll say but for me it's uh I have to confess it's kind of a compelling, like if you don't have a family, mm -hmm. um, if you're not married, it's kind of a compelling, or even if you are and your wife can come with you or your spouse can come with you, um, it's kind of a compelling and could be a really fun thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's how I would feel about it, like kind of like a exciting adventure, why not sort of thing. Like, let's try this. The thing about real golf I don't like saying that. I need a better way to say just golf. <laughs> so uh, the disc golfers refer to it as ball golf. Ball golf. I love that. Okay. Ball golf. Thank you. Um, contrasting ball golf and disc golf. There are a ton of things to like about disc golf, and there are a ton of things to dislike about ball golf. Um, and, and take your pick of things. Like, culture, elitism, money, access, environmental concerns, um, so many things, health and wellness, uh, it's corporate domination, all, I mean, all these things. And so in that way, it's, gosh, if you could make $40,000 a year playing disc golf in your 20s, that sounds pretty awesome, <laughs> you know? Uh, that, that sounds really great, whereas uh, – I know from friends that are trying it and have done it, it is an absolute slog uh, in ball golf to do that. Um, it is a lot of work, a lot of energy, and it's probably still pretty fun for a while. But I, I feel like from our value system, and this is getting just maybe into a larger conversation, there is a lot to like and appreciate about this golf, don't you think? Well, yeah, and I think that we, this is the part that we haven't really gotten into is just how accessible it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I just love the fact that every time I go running around our little local park here, there's, you know, there's five groups playing at any given time. Yeah. Um, 
and it's all kinds of different people. Um, you know, you see couples out there playing together. You see other folks, and you see folks with just one or two discs. You see folks with, you know, fifty discs on their back, uh, and it, they're all out there having a good time. You see folks that are really good. You see folks that are terrible. Yeah. Um, and I, I just that feels very democratic and very compelling to me to see that um, how easy and accessible it is, and how what like the park hasn't changed. It's still just a park. Right. Like as the same environmental perspective, there's just now people throwing discs around it. Um, and at the same time, it's a, it's a healthy outdoor activity type thing that nobody's paying money for here. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think of, of the sports we love, there's something just so valuable of being able to go to a park and do it for free. And to be able to do it with anyone and anyone, if they choose to do it, can go do it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something really awesome about that. And ball golf does not have that. <laughs> it might be one of the most difficult sports to access there is. Um, so in that way, yeah, I, I think back to your original question of what is my impression of watching it, there is something really, really pleasant about knowing that you're watching something so accessible. Uh, and so casual in a way um, that it, it's it's just some folks throwing discs around a park, and that's just really wonderful to me. There, there's something really valuable to that for someone that enjoys watching athletic competition and knowing that it's coming in such a way that it's uh, pretty free of a lot of damaging things that hold down the sports world at large. So. I, th- I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from watching it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I, I think there's also the additional part of, you know, part of the reason we watch sports is to see incredible things be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's hard, it's often hard to judge what's incredible. So, I mean, I don't know how yes. many back in the days when we watched football, right. Um, you know, you, they talk about this offensive lineman or right. this linebacker doing something and that they'd have to explain why it's super compelling that they did the thing that they did. Mm-hmm. where when you can go do that and like so we can go play almost any of these courses that these disc golf folks are playing um right. there are a few out there that charge but a lot of them are pre and open to the public all these things so like we can go play it uh and so when you can then go play it yourself but you see how incredible what they're doing is um like I, so a lot of these tournaments i'm watching like i would i could never do any of these things right you know they make it look so easy it, there is something really compelling about that aspect of it that you know part of why we do sports is to see people do things that we can't do right um and this is this is a very clear example where we can see people doing things that we just can't i can't throw a disc that far right Six, 600 feet feels pretty unfathomable to me right this is an interesting thing too for talking about niche sports and or how sports grow their brand. And that is, it, it's probably true for every sport. And so maybe it's just like a universal thing that's quite interesting to me. And that is, it's difficult to prove to an ignorant audience how difficult that sport is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think about the X Games, like I, it gets written on written off i think by a general audience because it's like oh that's just some some folks skateboarding and skiing whatever like that like no these are these athletes are at a level that olympic athletes are at and in fact many of them compete in the olympics and so i think that's true for 
or were disk off to grow uh, a lot, I think the learning curve would be pretty high for a general audience to appreciate how good uh, the professionals are. See, I, I would kind of disagree with you. I think it would be a little easier because of how accessible it is. Like, I think one of the issues for me with X Games or figure skating or gymnastics or any of these things is like, even the most basic skateboard flip seems amazing to me. Yeah. And so there, then that means that the difference between the most amazing, like the 980, what, 960, whatever, yada, 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 right. those things, um, like the difference between that and the basic things are very small for me. Like I can't, and like in ice skating, I can't, you know, I recognize it's all beautiful, except the only thing I recognize that's different is when someone falls down. It's kind of the same way for me right. with some of these sports. And so I think the difference with disc golf is like, if you have a higher percentage that could go out and play, then perhaps you have a higher percentage that can recognize seeing something incredible when they see it. Um, Whereas like with X games, like as a, as a, how old am I? 35 year old. I'm never going to learn how to flip a skateboard at this point. Um, and so like that, that feels like a much broader learning curve in some ways than a disc golf does to me. Yeah, I hear that. I, I think there, there is something to the fact that watching disc golf, you're not going to see like a triple backflip. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to see the human body doing things that seem unreasonable or insane. And so it, it's a pretty, for the most part, it, it appears pretty normal. And mm-hmm. so it, it's not exceptional athletic feats as compared to something like uh half pipe or uh, I don't know, something where someone's body is doing except, or even dunking a basketball or something like that. So in that way, I think that's what I'm referring to is like, yeah, ninety nine point nine nine percent of people cannot do what Paul Macbeth can do with a disc, but watching him do it doesn't wow. Yeah, you know, unless you know and have tried to do what he just did. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's why I sent you that um, the one of the two guys playing the the neighborhood park course, yeah, uh, where it's like they go out, they played eighteen holes, and their goal was not to like to shoot a good score; it was to get an ace. Yeah, like that's what they were trying to do, which is like. Okay, well, that's different. That's not how we would play that course. Exactly, but. yeah. Yeah. I know. I thought about that when the main course I grew up playing and played all through high school was, um, I mean, we would shoot like 20 under on it as in high school because it was so easy. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what this course was for the pros that, that video. Like they would go to the course I grew up on and just try and make holes in one. Yeah. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Um, well, are you going to watch it when it comes on CBS Sports? I definitely will. I'll definitely pay attention to it this okay. week. Yeah, I'll be super curious to see what that looks like and feels like. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to see how it goes on television, like uh, on a big screen uh, with the production company assistance behind it, like that. There are a lot. I think a lot of the anger was also that it's going to be on CBS Sports and not on a bigger network. They felt like folks sold out for um, a minor thing. Right, right. Do you play at all? I do, I do. I I was playing once a week. I threw my shoulder out about a month ago, and so I, I'm just getting back to the point where I'll get out again. I'm not very good at all, but mm-hmm. I'll try and play once a week or so. It made me want to play, um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that 
the course closest to me is on the top 100 courses in America. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. That's a, pretty impressive. I shy away from those courses because they're too difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> there are some incredibly difficult holes on this course. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would love to. I play a couple times a year, but I would love to get back into it. I absolutely loved it in high school. Yeah, well, uh, I, well, whenever this is over, we should go get together, play around disc golf then. We should make our first sports and society video content, playing disc golf together. <laughs> we should see how hard it is to, to do these things that Joe Mess and them are doing. Yeah, that would be fun. Like, maybe we could, if next time you're in Kentucky, we could go play Idlewild. Good grief! I that would, you talk about a six-hour round. That might be like an eight-hour round for us. That would be fun. We're doing it. All right, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah. I hope they have easy tees. <laughs> well, cool. well uh, good deal. Anything else you got? No, I was gonna say if you got anything else, but I'm no. good there. Good deal. Well, have you got any trivia for us this week? I do not. Oh my goodness, Kyle! It's like it's like we're uh, we we don't know what we're talking about anymore. Do you like the trivia segment? I couldn't honestly. I was like, do I want to do this or not? But I don't know <laughs> if it's interesting. So maybe I'll ask you on air if we should keep doing it or not. I I I, I find it intriguing. Um, okay. So uh, okay. I, if it, if it's a ton of work for you, I wouldn't suggest you uh, continue it. But if it's uh, something where you find something interesting and want to share it, then I'm totally down for that. Okay. Deal. Well, maybe right. I'll make it if I like come across something during the week and then I'll yeah. edit. But if I don't, then I won't. I like it. Okay. Right, cool. I'll, I'll find myself doing the same thing right, here. Good. So. Sounds good. By the way, did you see the guy that ran the new 5K record? No, I did not. Um, I It's just absurd. Uh, I need to pull this up because um, – uh, it it makes me feel so stupid aiming for my thirty minute five k. But um, uh, he just broke it, and he just had his first outdoor. I didn't see how his outdoor thing went yesterday, but uh, he did this a couple um, a couple weeks ago. Twelve thirty five. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, that's like that's what like, that's a four ten pace. Miles, yeah. Yeah. Holy smokes! Oh my gosh. What is that? Well, if you talk about like watching someone do something that seems unhuman. Well, and like he afterwards he's like walking around like holding his arms up like, "Yeah, I did it." And it's like, "How do you still have energy after that?" Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I can't, that, I can't even conceive of that. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. So I mean, you I mean, you're fast, right? So what what did you run the other day? 23:30. 23, so he's running like almost twice as fast as the. That was everything I had. Everything I had. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Anyway. Well, with that, uh, we'll let you go. All righty. All right. Well, thanks you all for listening. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. We appreciate you. We'll be back next week, but thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, calling, nobody's, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus.
a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.